Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the program today, we preview the All Blacks opening Tri-Nations test against the Springboks, talking to former South African captain Bob Skinstad. It's a year to go to the London Olympics and New Zealand chef Demission Dave Courage there to check things out. Julian Dean reflects on his proudest moment in professional cycling and the Junior All-Whites begin their World Cup campaign. The defending champions, the All Blacks, begin their Tri-Nations campaign this weekend in Wellington when they play a second-string Springbok side which has been told to make South Africa proud. South African officials have this week angrily denied the 21 frontline players not on the New Zealand trip are injured and not taking part in a secret training camp in Rustenburg. The CEO of South African rugby, Yuri Roo, wouldn't say how many of the 21 players are attending the camp, but he insists the players are all injured and undergoing rehabilitation. The All Blacks haven't lost a Tri-Nations match since 2009, and look set to extend their winning streak in the competition to eight tests against a weakened South Africa side, which was comprehensively beaten by Australia last weekend. Barry Guy asked former Springbok captain Bob Skinstad what that result means ahead of the All Black Test. Depends what you want to take. You know, I mean, I think um, from a South African rugby point of view, there were there were players who who wouldn't normally getting an opportunity uh, be getting an opportunity that that did. Um, some of which stood up and some of which didn't. So I suppose we could take things, you know. I, I don't know how much the rest of the world could because, you know, probably 21 guys at home um, are now more raring to go and there's a couple of guys who now know they probably can't step up to international and, and one or two guys who think they might have the opportunity. So this part of the Tri-Nations, uh, you know, the World Cup's quite a lengthy year. The, you have the pool matches and that to sort of build up. Playing these other guys doesn't take anything away from the World Cup preparation, in your view. Well, I, you know, you got to look historically. Everyone's got different um, you know, planning methodologies. You know, um, before 2007, Graham Henry took all of the All Blacks out of Super Rugby. Um, you know, for eight weeks, uh, the rest of the world said, "Well, that, that's messed up our domestic competition completely." This time, you know, we've got a Springbok side who, who are preparing. They've all played Super, super Rugby, a more um, challenging. Um, Calendar certainly, um, and given all the you know all the all the, the provincial sides and franchises that opportunity, and then in a in a in a World Cup year, this is two matches, you know, so far away from home, two and a half months out. I don't think it detracts at all. In fact, I think it will probably aid South Africa to prepare and and maybe give the other sides an opportunity to play against a, a you know a lesser strength South African side um, anyway. You know. A, Planning is is proved whether it's good enough, good enough or not by the result. So you, you you won't know until they get to a World Cup and they've got a good enough side. What about the All Blacks? You know, how, what what can they take out of this? You know, knowing that it's a sub-strength Springbok side they're going to play this weekend. 
Well, it's a number of things. I mean, you know, are they playing uh, the full-strength All Blacks this weekend? Do, do Fiji feel aggrieved that Dan Carter didn't turn up last weekend? You know, so you can you can ask as many questions and give as many answers as you want to. Um, I think the All Blacks have got an opportunity to start to galvanise, um, you know, through continuous playing a a, a really front sort of, uh, I mean, a, a really top uh, selected side. And then maybe if they wanted to go over to South Africa and, and play away from home and, and do well in that and use that to, to spur them on to the World Cup. You know, but the, their preparation's up to them. So what does Peter de Villiers do this week? Like I said, one or two guys put their hands up and one or two guys went missing. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be some selection conundrums for him. Um, you know, whether, the, whether the world believes it or not, we have been devastated by injury. I mean, um, the, the probably fifth and seventh rated locks in the country in the country started last weekend and one broke a rib and the other one did his ankle so you know we're looking at nine and ten possibly coming in and not having played at all um so because lock number four tore his hammy in the middle of the week so you know i'm, I'm happy that we've got guys like victor matfield and bucky's boy recovering at home you know whether or one's to surgery and the other one's to a long-term injury um, but to be honest, if I'm Peter de Villiers right now, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. You know, I might play a guy like Donny Rousseau, who's been a reserve lock, um, starting at, at lock this weekend, and maybe shift the loose forwards around. Um, but I, I certainly would be keeping at least some powder dry. I wouldn't be flying out guys who, who, who nursing injuries to try and play now. This is a World Cup year, though. Does it detract from the game that perhaps uh, you know the Springboks have left so many at home, the All Blacks might not play their top side, you know? the game itself? You know, detracting is, I suppose, how you see it. Uh, if you've got 21 injured guys, they're injured. You know, um, if the doctor says they're not ready to play front-line rugby, then that's fine. They contributed in the Super Rugby. Is that good enough? You know, when the All Blacks stayed out of Super Rugby, then you got them. Then they played very well in the Tri-Nations and, and managed to ham up a World Cup. So I think um, it's all about the result of your preparation at the end. You know, I don't think you know detracting from it's going to affect anybody except for conjecture until uh, there's a World Cup final and there's a result. I suppose for the side the Springboks have this weekend though, they're playing the All Blacks, you know, if they're not going to get motivated for something like that and play their best, they're never going to. This is a great opportunity for your guys. I mean, it's a magnificent opportunity. You know, we had a guy, Loisian Vovo, who played against James O'Connor, probably the best finishing wing in the world at the moment. You know, he's an immensely talented guy, and, and Vovo wasn't out of his depth at all. In fact, he was one of the shining lights of, of the team. In fact, you know, if he got a bit more ball in, in um, space, uh, then things might have gone okay for him. So, can you imagine he, if he was motivated enough against the Wallabies? You know, there should be 14 other guys who say, "Why the hell wasn't I?" Um, and I think anyone in this side, you know, Springboks grow an arm and a leg when they play uh, the All Blacks because, you know, that's one of the great rivalries of world sports. So definitely everyone will be out there and, and going for it. Look, I hope we get, um, uh, you know, written off and I hope everyone says that, that they're not going to turn up because that's when South Africa are pretty good at turning up. That's the former Springbok captain Bob Skinstad talking to Barry Guy. This week marks one year to go until the London Olympics. London will become the first city to host the Games for a third time, although the last time was more than 60 years ago in 1948, just three years after the end of World War II. The New Zealand Olympic team's chef to mission, Dave Curry, is now in London for a second inspection trip, and he'll attend a number of test events. He'll join New Zealand athletes and support teams at the Junior World Rowing Champs on the Olympic course at Eton Dorney, and the Weymouth and Portland International Sailing Regatta, 
along with the World Series Triathlon Test event in Hyde Park. We're impressed, really, with uh, two things, both the organisational capacity of LOCOG and how well advanced they are. And I was there three months ago, and they're impressed as an organisation that they, they know what they know, and if they're not sure or things uh, are not quite right in the area, they acknowledge that and they're working on it and they keep you updated as they, as they move forward. So that sort of honesty is, uh, is, is fantastic. And we had a tour of venues, and they are really impressed with this new site in, uh, in East London that they've developed with the village and the main stadium and the velodrome and um, the swimming pool and basketball, all in one cluster. You're having the triathlon in the, in the centre of Hyde Park will be really exciting. Uh, you know, equestrian in, in Greenwich uh, Park, you know, just down the road. Um, rowing uh, is at Eden Dorney, and to be a separate village for the rowers. And then equally for sailing down at Weymouth, uh, a separate village down there. But all of them were, uh, were, were impressive. If we go back a games or two, you, you, you look at, uh, as you say, some of the facilities, <coughs> some of the stadia and the likes... They were rushing to get them finished, but that's not the case here? No, no. A year out, uh, they're having a whole range of test events. I mean, the organisers always say they'll have test events and venues uh, prior to the games. In my experience, that hasn't happened a lot <clears throat> over the last you know, few games that I've been involved in. So, no, they won't be putting the grass down or uh, you know, painting uh, you know, the, the final touches as we, as we arrive. So the other reason we're going up, uh, we're going up early, in fact, there's, uh, there's a range of test events happening at the moment. One uh, at Weymouth for sailing, there's a full uh, pre-regatta there, and we've got you know, team competing there, so we'll go down there. Uh, the World Junior Rowing Champs are happening uh, as, a, as a test event, and Alan Carter and the high-performance team are there, and so we can spend time with them. Good rowing, you know, they're, going to be, you know, they're hoping to qualify 35 rowers, which will be by far the, you know, the largest team we've ever had you know, and, a, and a contingent of probably 50. So understanding what their needs are going to be and make sure we uh, there's no surprises there for, for them or us is going to be important. And then the test event for triathlon Hyde Park is on next Saturday, which also doubles as the final trial for the New Zealand team. So uh, you know, a real opportunity to see the, op- you know, the operational readiness of the Games and a good chance for us to see and understand uh, you know, how things will operate. Now, security has been an issue for many years now, and it's <clears throat> almost routine now for, for anything that happens sure. in the world. You don't expect it to be sort of uh, any need for it to be over the top in London? No. I mean, it's about, you know, one is, is risk and the other is mitigation, really, and how, uh, how organising committees and, and countries cope with it. And one of the, you know, the positive things around around England and around London in particular is uh, is your ability to to mitigate you know whatever the risks might be. And we've got you know, we're working with uh, you know, New Zealand Police here and New Zealand Government, you know, with the organisers in London and uh, and the government over there. And so we've got real faith that they will put in place you know whatever mitigation is required to make sure it's a safe and uh, games environment for athletes to go into. Previous Olympics in the recent years, you know, uh, Beijing was uh, breaking new ground in Asia. Uh, uh, Athens, of course, is returning to the home of modern Olympics. Did London have something special? Do you think it is uh, perhaps history, you know, and just where the Olympics fit in there? What what, what will London have to offer? Yeah, I think there is really. I mean, London held the Games in 1948. 
uh, you know, straight after the war. And they had a chance to spend some time with Nairi Galloway, who was the only woman in the New Zealand team in 1948. She was a 100-metre uh, swimmer. And chatting to her yesterday, she said, you know, a range of things. Going back, and London was still devastated, um, but they wanted the Olympics to go ahead. They wanted to, you know, show the courage of that, and so they did that. And she said it was lovely. They marched in the opening ceremony, and New Zealand got a bigger cheer than any other country, she said, uh, in just really an acknowledgement of the support that uh, New Zealand had given to, to the UK uh, you know, during those you know, really difficult times. So... We are going to, you know, the cartoon we're going to use and some of the imagery around uniform is reflective, really, of uh, of that 1948 team to not acknowledge, you know, what they uh, what they did. So, so that connection is going to be powerful for us. We think in 1948, you know, we we're still regarded, you know, pretty much as a colony of Britain. But you know, now we're we matured. We've got a strong, you know, multicultural society. Uh, you know, we're strong and secure in who we are. And want to go back into the world and uh, as a kind of growing up New Zealand and uh, and show what we can do on the world stage. So yeah, it's a nice symmetry and synergy around you know New Zealand emerging as a as a strong, secure nation in its own right. Really, you could call it the New Zealand team's big OE. That's what Pretty everyone much. goes to London for, really, isn't it? Do you do you expect um, a, a big New Zealand team going there? Do you sense? Because it's London, perhaps, that, you know, there's extra incentive to get there. There's something special about wanting to get to London? Yeah, well, in two, two ways. Yes, the team will be uh, significant. We, uh, on current predictions, we would think we'll have a team of uh, around 200 athletes and 100 support staff, so a team of 300, which is significant. And, and people probably don't realise it will be one of the top 20 teams by number at the Games. Um, you know, Russia and China and America and whatever, and then you know, New Zealand is in that top 20. So people can't believe that, you know, New Zealand, four and a half million people, how do we have such a significant uh, team over there? So you think there will be, and there's always a drive to get there from a competitive and athlete point of view, but equally around support. I mean, there's something like 150,000 um, New Zealanders uh, living over there. Um, so that would be a bit like a home games for us. And equally, uh, you know, a whole lot of support, I think, we'll want to go. Everybody knows somebody knows somebody in London. There'll be a lot of Kiwis uh, beating down on the floor, I think, over, uh, over a few weeks. And also, as you just mentioned earlier, I mean, it's going to be great to go to places, you know, that have historical uh, significance. You know, Weymouth, Hyde Park, Greenwich Park, all famous sort of uh, uh, places that we all know about. And then there's going to be sporting events held there. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the, the beach volleyball is in Horse Parade, which is right behind uh, 10 Downing Street. And uh, so they're using, you know, iconic parts of London for events. And I think that's going to be uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. And I was in London about three months ago and hadn't been there for quite a number of years. And it was clean and tidy and organised. There's some vibrancy about it. And uh, I think they'll do it you know, extraordinarily well. That's the New Zealand Olympic team chef to mission Dave Curry talking to Barry Guy. Meanwhile, the NZOC has announced the results of an online poll which shows New Zealand's favourite Olympic uniform is the one worn at Athens in 2004. It featured a white fern reminiscent of a Greek laurel wreath and was preferred to the uniforms worn at Rome in 1960, Seoul in 1988 and London in 1948. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. 
The New Zealand cyclist Julian Dean, who made sporting history by becoming the first New Zealander to appear on the podium at the Tour de France, says next year will likely be his last as a professional. Dean helped his Garmin Cervelo team to win the team classification title, and although the 35-year-old is off contract at the end of the year, he's confident of securing another ride and making his seventh Tour appearance in 2012. He also hopes to compete in the Olympic road race in London. Joe Porter caught up with Julian Dean as he took in some of the parasites with his family in the wake of the tour, and he asked him about his latest ride and just what the success of Australia's Cadell Evans means for cycling in Australasia. It's really a wonderful experience, and you know, for me personally, quite a defining moment uh, my career. Um, you know, uh, finishing the Tour de France in Paris is always something special, and you know, to be able to be on the, on the podium, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to describe in words. Would you consider this, your, I guess, your greatest moment of your career? Yeah, I think so. It's uh, definitely a de- defining moment and probably, um, in you know, terms of results, one of, the, one of the biggest moments of my career. And obviously with um, Cadell winning, uh, sort of, I guess, uh, some good results for Australasian cycling and I guess uh, maybe a chance to sort of encourage a bit more development over here. Yeah, I think you know it's um, it's a it's a great time for cycling in our part of the world. Um, you know, the sports you know becoming increasingly more global. Uh, you know, when I first started, uh, teams were you know basically European based, but now you see um, winners coming from uh, from all walks of life and and from all parts of the world. In the future, do you see you know perhaps a, a Kiwi at least challenging for victory on the tour, or at least you know um, I guess being up there with the likes of Evans? Yeah, there's, there's always always a possibility, you know. But um, it's, you know, I think uh, the thing now is, you know, pathways for the younger guys have already already been set, and they get more more easily recognised um, when they're coming from countries like Australia or New Zealand, and more accepted into the uh, you know into the, the the peloton or the the racing scene, which was once you know totally dominated by uh, Europeans. So you feel like, I guess, some of these teams now are spreading their net a little bit wider around the world and there are opportunities, like you say, pathways for guys that aren't necessarily, you know, in the, in the cycling hubs to come through? You look at the, the teams um, that race the Tour de France now, I think, you know, when I first started, there was one sort of Anglo team. Uh, but now, if you look at across Tour de France, I mean, you know, there's five or six like, Anglo teams and, you know, English now is basically the first language of the of the pro cycling world and, you know, whereas up until sort of five or six years ago, it was always you know, still European and, and, and French dominated. And obviously, you know, with Thor, with Thor and with Tyler and your team, and you've, you've helped them to stage victories. I mean, what, what's it like being involved in that team? And, and how, I guess, how sort of, um, how what's the camaraderie like? And, and what are those guys like to work with? And sort of what, what's their attitude towards you and, and obviously your help that you provide them with? When you've, a team's been so successful like ours, you know, that, that sort of success only comes when you have good relations within the team. Um, you know, and, and, you know, everyone's highly respectful of each other, highly respectful of their roles and, um, you know, what, what they contribute to the overall performance of the team. So, you know, I think there's a, you know, there's a, a, a nice feeling within the team and there's a good understanding between all the guys. And obviously um, no sort of dramatic ego clashes like the uh, Contador Armstrong type scenario. No, definitely not. You know, um, you know, it was always a bit of a worry with the team starting out this year. But you know, as the year's gone on, uh, everyone sort of, uh, you know, found their place within the team and and being respectful and have worked well together. And in terms of, of next year, Julian, um, where, where do you stand contract-wise? 
my contract finishes at the end of uh, end of this year in December. So at the moment, I'm just trying to renegotiate a new contract for um, 2012. And obviously, your preference would be to stay with the team you're with now. Um, yeah, um, you know, certainly I'm looking looking for my uh, looking for other options as well. Um, you know, I'm predicting that probably 2012. Um, you know, probably will be my my last uh, my last year. So I need a you know an environment that's going to uh, suit my objectives uh, in 2012, which obviously include a game Tour de France and Olympic Games. And you are confident that you will be in the tour next year. Well, you, you never know. You know, it's um, you know it's uh, it's always difficult to, to predict. You know, the, the teams have squads of 30 riders. They only ever take it's, it's nine riders at the start of the Tour de France. So. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, it's still got to uh, you know prove yourself, prove, prove your foot fitness and your condition, and you know the other thing is I'm not getting any younger either. So you know, I never never say that uh, you're definitely going to be there. Olympics or Tour de France? I guess where does um, where does the uh, prestige stand for you? Um, yeah, I mean it is a, it is a hard question, but um, you know I think. Um, you know, being a New Zealander, I think you know there's a more of an of an understanding um, of the Olympic Games. Um, but you know, I think if you're uh, European based or especially like a French guy, then you know, I think the the, the Tour de France, uh, you know, probably stands head and shoulders above above the Olympic Games. Um, but you know, having you know someone like Cadell, for example, you know, I'm sure that uh, you know he has valued winning the Tour de France um, over probably in Olympic Games, you know, but it's, it's a really personal preference. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what happens for you now, Julian? Do you take a small break or do you launch straight back into it? And, and how do the preparations go, I guess, for the Olympics? How does that sort of ramp up? Yeah, I mean, I've, got, I've, I've still got racing to do the rest of this year. I've got a race coming up this Saturday. Um, then I take a, a small break for a couple of weeks and prepare for the World Championships at the end of September. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously the off-season, November, December, and and um, you know, start start building again in, in January for the next year's Olympic Games. And and how does the tour, I guess, fit in with that? I mean, obviously, uh, they're sort of uh, usually around, typically, the sort of same time of the year. Yeah, no, that's right. And the the road race at Olympic Games is um, exactly one week after the tour finishes. So it's it's really going to be imperative that um, that you're at the Tour de France in order to uh, to get the best preparation uh, for the Olympic Games. I guess in that sense, though, at least it means that you will be sort of peaking at the right time for the, the road race in London, obviously coming off a tough tour. Yeah, no, exactly. And, um, you know, when you do a three-week stage race like the Tour de France, uh, that fitness and form and condition that it gets you, um, you know, you can't replicate that sort of uh, that, that environment and training. And I guess it potentially gives you a, a brief look at least at some of your rivals at, in London. Yeah, definitely, you know... Um, it's you know I mean the, the Olympic road race is a you know it's a different beast than the Tour de France obviously but you know you'll get a good assessment of um, of who's riding well. And so you mentioned perhaps next year may maybe your last uh, on the tour. Any particular reason behind that? Just my age, I think. Um, you know I've got got family now and and, and two boys and um, you know I've been 15 years doing this job so it's uh, you know one day it's going to end and. Uh, you know, I like to still end it while I'm while I'm going well and while I'm performing at my best. One of the greatest experiences that cycling is giving me is um is the opportunity to to live abroad. You know, we've been uh, almost 15 years based in Spain, and um, you know, that's 
it's a place that we've made our home now. And, uh, you know, we've had some uh, very pleasant experiences uh, with my two boys growing up there and, and uh, with Carol also. That's cyclist Julian Dean talking to Joe Porter. The Junior All-Whites begin their Under-20 Football World Cup tournament in Colombia this weekend, but have suffered a major setback with one of their key players, midfielder Marco Rojas, ruled out of the opening match after suffering a hamstring injury at training. New Zealand play Cameroon in their tournament opener, but coach Chris Milicic hopes Rojas will be fit for the remainder of the group matches. They were due to have one more warm-up match ahead of the tournament, but Chris Milicic told Murray Williams they've decided against that. Because we felt that uh, we needed to get some, some training under our belt, uh, bearing in mind that this team has sort of just come together again just before we started LA, and uh, there were some, you know, some strategic things that we wanted to implement that uh, if we'd have played another game and had another rest day, it would have been two days where we couldn't get the work in. So we were meant to be playing tonight, I think it was, so uh, no, so we pulled that. Uh, but it was only going to be against a local Calais uh, Academy side, so it's... It's neither here nor there, really. So, what have you been working on? What that any issues that you uh, highlighted in the USA? Well, the, one of the biggest things was uh, lack of time together for for the defenders. You know, obviously Luke Rose, uh, the preferred left back for the Fenland Twenties, and he, of course, straight up the qualifiers went off back to the UK. So he's not had a he's not had a lot of time recently with the, with the back four. Um, so we're just getting back on communication on their lines of uh, the lines of approach into wide areas in particular, and how we're going to cover up the balls quickly shifted into the the central zone. So. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much working with them and then uh, with the two banks of four that we want we want to incorporate in our game plan. We'll make sure that they all work. And, of course, players like Tim Payne's come in and uh, Cameron Lindsay, etc. So it's really a case of what we saw in the LA was some wonderful attacking play at times, but a couple of just quite not, not bad defensive errors, but defensive errors that shouldn't occur. And we just want to rectify that before we go into these major games. Correct me if I'm wrong, this is the under-22nd uh, tournament, isn't it? So how realistic do you think your chances are of making it past the group stage this time? Well, considering that the last under-20s came to this tournament, I think it was four years ago, didn't even get a point. I'm not even sure if they even scored a goal. Uh, the under-20 level, of course, is is one of the most difficult levels for, for a New Zealand team. And under-17s, we're comparable with uh, most under-17 teams around the world to a degree. And, of course, at all-white level, you're talking professionals against professionals. Uh, but at this level, we've, we're, we're going up against full-time professionals with uh, at least 10 of the players, well, a whole group of most of the players, actually, uh, not currently attached to professional clubs and, and coming out of the New Zealand and uh, wider domestic leagues. There's, what, 24 teams there, and there's a, a lot of big names. Uh, you've got um, a couple of them. Uruguay just won the Copa America, and uh, you, they're, they're in your group, so I guess they'll be fairly cock-a-hoop about that. Well, I, I think it's rather interesting. Uruguay's just made the final of the under-17s not so long ago. Um, they've just won the Copa America. So um, I've seen the Uruguay guys around the hotel, and they uh, they are certainly very focused on what they're doing, but at the same token, they look like the, the weight of the world's on their shoulders, so it'll be interesting to see how they respond. You can tell that uh, there's a bit of pressure on them to continue the work that's going on, and Uruguay is similar to us with the work that's been going on in New Zealand football. Indeed. How useful was that Korean tournament? And You had the win over, was it 4-3 over Nigeria and, and lost by only one goal to Uruguay. Would, would they be much the same teams, or did they experiment a bit over there? Well, I think that the Nigerian team was really interesting. The team that we played in Korea was pretty much the team that had won the African champions. 
And I think their performance in Korea made them move, and they've changed eight of their players. So, uh, yeah, I think they're very, very committed to winning the tournament. I think out of our group, you'd say that Uruguay and Portugal and Nigeria from the other group, they're really looking to win the tournament. So uh, they're definitely changed. They've obviously strengthened themselves. And, of course, Cameroon lost the African final to Nigeria 3-2, but at the time Nigeria were up 3-0. So it'll, it'll be interesting. I'm not sure that any of Korea... Uh, did, you know, as a as a guideline for what's going to happen here. But what it certainly allowed the New Zealand players was to realise that they can compete and they can win games at at this level. And, of course, Nigeria are seen as one of the top under-20 sides in, in the world. So it was a, a great, great result, uh, but it's got to be replicated three more times. And, you know, it would have been nice if had three or four internationals at that level prior to the tournament. But, of course, where we, we come from is a long way from anywhere and uh, resources, time and money of course, start to count against us a little bit. Indeed, so there's no... Uh, you can't look and say Cameroon and Uruguay, Portugal, well, we'll target, say, Cameroon as the, as the best chance of a point. They're all going to be tough. They're all going to be tough, and, uh, you know, I, I think if we said, look, we're going to target that for a point, what do we do with the other two? So my target, and for the team's target, the team has definitely got themselves their own targets they want to achieve, oh, but my target for the team is to make them as competitive as possible in every single game to give them the greatest opportunity to pick up a result in each of the games we play. And I think if we if we organise ourselves into that sort of thinking and mindset and become competitive and really have a attacking mindset at these sides, we're more likely to get a result than not. You've got some uh, fairly experienced campaigners at, the, at, at that age level, I guess, starting their professional careers. You've got likes of Marco Rojas and you've got Stefan uh, Marinovic, who's playing in Germany, I think. So what do they get from a tournament like this? So are the people there scouting, for example, looking at them and thinking they might go well in well, Europe? Well, I think there are a, a tremendous amount of scouts. Um, there are a tremendous amount of people interested. Um, but I think for any professional player, every time they step onto the grass, it's it's a step up and they've got to be prepared to to uh, prove that they're good enough to make that next level. I mean, in regards to Marco, he's uh, he's pinged his hammy at training tomorrow, yesterday and uh, it's probably not going to be available for game one. So that's a, that's a huge disappointment for the team. But it's, you know, it's just one of those things. That's junior All-Whites coach Chris Milicic talking to Murray Williams. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time. I'm Stephen Hewson. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.